in years of ministry, there seems to have been a consistent question that comes up. It comes up frequently, it comes up often uh, when doing life and ministry with people. It's, it's not exclusive to those of us who are in ministry. I would imagine probably you've been confronted with the very same kind of question. Uh, the, the, the question is, is one that the song which Josh just sang builds upon in the reminder to put our hope and our trust in God and to remain there. The question is, is phrased a multiplicity of ways. Usually it is at the event of some sort of calamity, some sort of tragedy, some sort of bad thing that has happened. And someone will come along and ask the question something like this, why do bad things happen to good people? You heard that question before probably, haven't you? Quite honestly, you've possibly asked that question before. I think it's a question that is, is on our lips, it's on our hearts, it's on our minds from time to time. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's a very emotional question. And I find when people are asking the question, they are in this emotional pressure cooker, if you will. Something is going on within their lives, and, and the question is an emotional one, which makes it even that much more difficult to answer. We could step back and we can answer the question from a theological perspective and drone on and on about the providence of God and the goodness of God and, uh, and the sovereignty of God. We, we could talk about His plan and His purpose, which we very rarely fully understand, even within our own lives. Sometimes, though, I've discovered the best answer is just simply to say, I don't know why you're going through this. I don't know why this is happening. Oftentimes, when we, when we interject a solution to the problem, we usually get it wrong. That's what happens in our text in Luke chapter 13. There were a couple of situations that, were, uh, that are brought up in this interaction with Jesus and the crowd of people, this multitude of people. Bad situations, tragic situations and circumstances. And there were those who had made a presumption as to the answer as to why it happened. And Jesus said to them that they were absolutely wrong within it. Our text is Luke chapter 13. We'll be looking from verse 1 down to verse 9. And I just want you to notice, you know, sometimes the simplest things are the best things. And I tried to find a way to really elaborate and to, to pretty up the outline, if I could, for you and alliterate and all of these things that preachers are supposed to do. But I'm going to keep it very simple for you this morning with four points that follow very noticeably from the text. There is a question that is proposed. There is an answer that is given, an application that is made, and an illustration that's provided. So to break it down, question, answer, application, illustration of it. And that's what Jesus gives for us here. Let's read this morning, and let's just look at the first five verses, and we'll read the illustration of this uh, as we get to that point. Verse 1 of chapter 13 in Luke's Gospel. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus gives a question to the people related to what's going on in, in perhaps recent events. Uh, certainly it would not have been too far removed from the event. Jesus, we're told, at this very time, it goes back to Luke chapter 12, where we're told in verse 1 of Luke chapter 12 that Jesus was teaching there was a great multitude of people, that they were trampling upon one another to hear what Jesus had to say and to witness this man, Jesus, who had done so much and had spoken with such authority authority and such clarity, things with which they were not accustomed. Here in the midst of this great throng of people, this multitude of people, there is a question that is proposed to them. And Jesus does something amazing when he turns the tables on these people. Instead of dealing with the question at hand up front, he says the problem for you is that you have the wrong focus in this. Maybe, maybe you've done the same kind of thing before. You've been in a church service before, and the pastor has been preaching eloquently about a certain type of situation, a certain aspect of sinful behavior, a certain something in life, and you're thinking to yourself, boy, that's really good. I hope oh so-and-so over there is listening to what he's saying. You've done that before, maybe. Well, that's what these people were doing. And Jesus comes along and he says, don't look at the people on the other end of the pew from you. Look within your own heart. Look at the question that Jesus asks here. We find it asked twice in verse 2 and in verse 4, the beginning of both of them. He asked this question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or in verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Here Jesus in the midst of this multitude teaching to them, he already said some powerfully strong words to them. If you remember what we looked at at the end of Luke chapter 12 last week, when Jesus says to them essentially that they're hypocrites. They know how to read the signs going on around them related to the weather. You can tell when it's going to be hot. You can tell when it's going to be rainy. But you do not know and you do not discern the things of God. Jesus says you're hypocrites in the way you're living your life. Never one to mince words. Jesus calls it like it is. We get the idea that someone within the crowd, or maybe several someones within the crowd, decide to correct Jesus perhaps on his faulty statement about them not being able to, to discern the times. And maybe, maybe a hand goes up in some way and just a way to be able to say, oh yeah, I understand the times, Jesus. I understand the times very well. In fact, you remember those Galileans? Those Galileans who were murdered by Pilate's order? Now, this is the only account in all of the Gospels that we find this event shared for us. It, it, it isn't repeated anywhere else, and part of that may simply be because things of this nature happened so frequently then. Pilate was, was a, a notoriously cruel man. He ruled... Uh, the, the Roman oppression of the region at that time. He ruled with an iron fist. 
He didn't put up with anything, and so it was not frequent to hear of a group of people, Galileans, Israelites, however it might have rung out, that they were put to death, being seen perhaps as an assault or an affront to the Roman government. We don't know much about the event, but we can piece together some elements of it to let us gather kind of what was going on. There were some Galileans who were in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Now there was only one place that sacrifices could be made, and that was at the temple there, uh, the Temple Mount just above the Kidron Valley across from the Mount of Olives. It had to have been the Passover time as well, because this is the only time that, that laity would have been allowed to have been a part of this offering of sacrifices. Pilate, of course, in his paranoia, was, uh, was a little bit spooked by crowds. He didn't like crowds very much, especially a crowd of Jewish gatherers under Roman oppression. And so here you have this huge a crowd of Jewish people coming to the temple to offer sacrifices at the time of Passover. And apparently there was a group of these Galileans who had been killed by the occupying Roman, uh, occupying Roman forces in the very act of offering their sacrifices at the temple. That's why we read here Jesus asking them uh, about this with, when their, their blood, Pilate, had mingled with the sacrifices. While they were in the act of sacrificing, the Romans murdered them in the temple area and the blood from the sacrifice and the blood from these Galileans mingled together. The people are saying to themselves, yeah, Jesus, we understand the times. Those Galileans whom Pilate killed, this was clearly God's judgment on them because of their wickedness. They were a wicked group of people and so God brought judgment. They really got taught a lesson, didn't they, Jesus? We see the sign of the times. We get that message. God punished them for their sin. That wasn't the only question that came up or the only sign, other sign that was used in verse 4. We're told about 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Maybe, maybe someone else brought up this sense. And, oh yeah, you know the Galileans, but let me remind you of those people that were gathered in Jerusalem and this tower just out of nowhere all of a sudden collapsed and, and 18 people were killed. This tower built near the pool of Siloam. One of the things that the Romans had done is they had built an incredible aqueduct system that, that would travel throughout the region and deliver water to Israel and to Jerusalem in particular. And apparently, in some way, for some reason, this tower fell and 18 people were killed. The difference between this event and the previous event is that there is no human agent to blame. Beyond even that, the Galileans were kind of frowned upon by the upper crust of society, if you will. And so maybe we could even understand to say, well, yeah, those Galileans, they got what they deserved. They're really nobody. But here you have no human agent to blame, and here you have people of Jerusalem who are losing their lives. Yes, we understand the times. Those 18 people clearly, just like the Galileans, were being judged by God for their wickedness. I can read the signs of the times. God has brought punishment on them because of their sin. And we think to ourselves, how could someone possibly be so callous as to say something like that? But I wonder, is it not the case that oftentimes we do the same thing? 
that we think the same kind of thoughts. We, we may not verbalize them, and, and, and at least we do it with other people. Sometimes we do it with ourselves. We, we look at the bad that has befallen them, and we wonder, what have they done? Why is God punishing them? Or we even look at some sort of calamity within our own lives, and we say, what have I done? Why is God punishing me for this? What's sad is that usually in American culture, we have a tendency to do the reverse of that, though. We look at it not as a sign of God's judgment if maybe someone has done something bad, but if someone is blessed, we see it simply as the fact that they must be good and God is blessing them in this way. Financial blessings, oh, God must be pleased with them. He must really like them more than he does me or he would give me that. Material blessings, oh, God must be happy with them, at least more happy than he is with me because they don't give me that and, and, and we, we buy into this health and wealth mentality, that if we live for God, everything is going to be good, we're going to be healthy, we're going to be wealthy, and that's God's plan for our lives. We simply cannot say that. We've, we've adopted this, this false gospel, many times without even acknowledging it within our lives. And so Jesus asks the question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the others because they suffered in this way, verse 2, or in verse 4, or those 18, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus comes along and he says, do you think that these people were, were worse than everyone else because of what happened to them? Is that what we're supposed to learn from these tragedies? That, that these people must have been especially wicked. Therefore, they had been judged with death. When tragedies strike, are we to learn that those tragedies are clearly God's providence of judgment against the wicked? When we look in, in our own history, and when we travel back to 9-11, and we see the two towers in New York, are we to think that the people within the Twin Towers were worse than everyone else in New York City or in the United States of America? The earthquake that, that, that devastated Haiti in 2010, are we to think that it was because people in Haiti were more wicked than the people in America? I actually had people say things like that to me. It's obvious that this is God's judgment upon this land because of their voodoo practices. What about those who didn't practice voodoo? What about those who were godly Christians trying to influence their culture for Christ? What about the flooding in New Orleans? People said to me even at that time, it's obvious why God did this, because they are such an immoral city and God brings judgment and punishment upon them. What about those who were not that way and yet lost their lives? We've heard it all. We've might possibly said it, at least thought it. But is that really what God wants us to learn from tragic events of this nature? That's, that's the question that Jesus poses to us in our text. Are these people worse sinners than the others? It reminds me a lot of the question that was brought to Jesus in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, we read that Jesus passed by and he saw a blind man. He had been blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who was it that sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? You see how we have a tendency to do that? 
We have a tendency to see something bad, something that we suppose to be bad, and we think to ourselves, where is the sin in this? What did this person do? What is the wickedness by which they live? That's the question that Jesus asked of the people. Were these people worse than everyone else? And then Jesus gives an answer to it in verse 3 and in verse 5. Verse 3, he says to them, No, I tell you. Verse 5, he says the same thing. No, I tell you, you cannot say that the reason this happened is because of the personal wickedness of these people. Not all tragedy in crisis is due to one's own personal sin. Is it due to sin? Yes. You see, here's, here's the thing we must understand. We live in a world that is sinful and wicked. We are a people who are sinful and wicked. If it were not for sin in this world, we would not have to worry of things like this. If there was no sin in this world, we wouldn't have to worry about cancer. We wouldn't have to worry about heart attacks. We wouldn't have to worry about all of the kinds of things that we worry about. It is a result of the fact that there is sin in this world. But to look at an event and say that someone suffered this way because of their personal sin is way above your pay grade or mine. The first church that I pastored. There's an 18-year-old young man by the name of Jonathan Bass. Jonathan was an incredibly gracious young man. He was a believer, a follower of Christ, actively involved in the life of the church. And one day he and a friend were driving down at Highway 64 in North Carolina between Asheboro, North Carolina, and Siler City, North Carolina. And there was a gentleman who was driving. He had been traveling for a while, lecturing and doing all sorts of things. He fell asleep at the wheel. He crossed over into the lane and hit Jonathan's car head on. Jonathan was killed instantly. His friend survived the crash. Within that scenario, I had a broken-hearted mother ask me, has Jonathan done something wrong that God would take his life? You see, that's the belief that Jesus confronted here. It's, it's a belief that we have a tendency to hold on to. We, we think that the, the totality of our life is weighed up in our good and bad, and all of it's placed on a scale, and we hope that when we get to the end of life, the good outweighs the bad, and then we'll be okay. You see, that indicates that we don't understand the gospel. The gospel does not weigh out our good and bad. The gospel weighs out our wickedness and the righteousness of Christ. If we do not have His righteousness, there's no hope for us. And so Jesus comes along and He says, No, you cannot say these people were worse sinners than anyone else. Why? Because we are all equally sinners, that's why. You cannot draw the line and say, because this has happened, it must be a result of personal sin. Or you cannot draw a line from some tragic event and say it's connected to someone else's personal sin. You don't know that. God knows that. Can God do that? Of course. 
But unless he reveals like he did in his word, not just in our thoughts and our imaginations, you cannot know that. We know it happened with Ananias and Sapphira. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts. They lied to God and God took their lives. But that's what these people were doing here with this question. They see this event and they say, these people must have been wicked, more wicked than everyone else, and that's why God took their lives. Can you imagine the Pharisaism, the legalism that that produces in our lives? They died because they were wicked. I have not yet died, so I must be pretty good. And let me continue on the path of goodness as best I can, lest I die in the same way. I read just this week the story of some missionaries in Papua New Guinea. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were sitting in their house, relaxing in the heat of the day, when all of the sudden the side of the mountain gave way and crashed upon their home, killing them all. Why? I don't know. But I certainly cannot say it was because they had committed sin of some sort that it happened. And I must be really good because it hasn't happened to me. Look at how upright I am within all of this. So there's the question and the answer. But now look at the application. Jesus doesn't stop with just simply answering the question. He provides us an application to embrace. Again, verse 3 and verse 5, he says the same thing, answering the question, no, I tell you, and then he gives this application to us, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it twice, verse 3 and verse 5. But unless you, like, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's what we need to learn from this, Jesus said. Whatever else can be learned about God's providence from these tragedies, this message must not be missed. And the message is quite simply this, repent, or you will all likewise perish. You see, Jesus comes along and he says, you cannot say that these people were worse sinners than anyone else. I dare say probably if you had run a census of Jerusalem and Israel at the time, you would have found some incredibly immoral people. Probably even more immoral than these people. So what do we learn from this? Do we draw this kind of line in our lives? Where we look at things that happen and say, how do I need to repent because of what I see happening in the world? Do we, when we come to the Word of God being preached, do we step back and say, of what do I need to repent because of what I have just heard? We, we miss this notion of repentance today. We, we look at others instead of ourselves, and we're quick to say, they should do this, they should repent of this, rather than saying, of what do I need to repent? And I know this is a hard lesson to grab hold of. I know it's a hard lesson to hear, but hang on with me until we get to the illustration of this. Several years ago, I had a young man tell me about how much he enjoyed going to his church. 
invited them to come be a part of Boone Trail at some point. He said, well, I, I go to thus and such church. And he said, you know, the reason I like it is because I don't have to hear how bad I am. I thought, well, that's wonderful. I'd love a place like that that I don't have to hear how bad I am. But I need to be reminded how bad I am. Because if I don't see how bad I am, the grace of God means very, very little to me. See, the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf means little when we think of ourselves as good, moral, upright citizens who weren't really in that desperate of need. And the truth of the matter is, all of us are in that desperate of need. Which is why Jesus said, don't draw a line from this tragedy to their hearts. Draw a line from this tragedy to your heart. To you personally. Individually. Jesus says repent. Or you will all likewise perish. Repentance is a gauge of the reality of our faith. If we're not coming up against, uh, against things about ourselves that we see in ourselves that are not right toward God, if we're not reckoning with those things, we're not opening our eyes to who we really are. Christians are repenting people. Christians are known for repentance. So can we just stop for just a moment and let's just step back and you, just in the stillness and the quietness of your own heart, can you just answer this question before you and God this morning of what are you repenting today? we're not repenting, something is wrong. We're not aware of our own heart. Repentance means to know our sin and to grieve over our sin. And when we see something like this that Jesus tells us about, he is saying, here's the line that you draw in this tragedy. Lord, help me to hate my sin as much as I hate the suffering." Can I just tell you what repentance is not as we move along real quickly? Repentance is not just simply an emotional experience of, of simply crying in public over something. It's, uh, repentance is more than even genuine remorse, a feeling of sorrow. Repentance is not a, a ritual of penance, a mechanical carrying out of some sort of ordered exercise as a means of paying the price for our sin in some sense. Repentance begins with a change of mind, not in the sense that we change it in order that we might change it back again, but a change of mind that brings a change of action. It is firstly an intellectual thing. Then it is a volitional thing, and only then, if then, does it become an emotional thing. The problem is that we put all of our eggs in the emotional basket, and we imagine when there is some sort of emotion that is seen or experienced that it must be genuine. 
But if there is no change of mind that leads to a change of action, repentance has not occurred. So the question, are they worse sinners? The answer, no. The application, repent. And then finally, the illustration that we look at very, very quickly. Verse 5, Jesus tells this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here's the illustration of repentance. Jesus tells this illustration of astonishing mercy. There's this man that owns a vineyard and he plants a fig tree in his vineyard. For three years there's no fruit on the fig tree until finally the owner of the land says, cut it down. It's just taking up good space. Get rid of it. The caretaker comes along and he says, Sir, just another year. Just another year. Let me keep working on it. What astonishing mercy this is. The kind of mercy that God has towards us when it comes to repentance. John Bunyan, who wrote the Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, commenting on these verses, said that the the, the, the tree obviously had become root-bound, had become earth-bound, and so that's why the caretaker says, I'm going I'm to dig around it, I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to take care of the root system, and let's see if that helps. Let's, let's loosen up the roots, let's dig up the earth, let's, let's lay these roots bare. He makes the application to us in that, that some of us are earth-bound. Some of us are, are root bound. We've, we've grabbed hold too tightly to this earth and the stuff of this earth. Our hearts are far from God. Our, our lusts keep us from the things of God. Our pleasures entice us away from God. Our comforts keep us from following after God. But look at the great care. Look at the love. Look at the labor with which the vine dresser comes and he looks after the tree. He fertilizes it cares for it. What a great display of mercy and grace given to us. That he continues to work with us. That we might bear fruit. What kind of repentance is it? It's repentance that Jesus says is the repentance that leads to bearing fruit. It's hard to accept that we are as bad as we really are, isn't it? It's hard for us to accept that we really deserve something as bad as God's judgment. But oftentimes I think it is even more difficult for us to see that God is incredibly merciful. Because when we see our sin, and when we, sin what, we see what our sin deserves, it is very, very difficult to believe that God would ever show us mercy. And yet that's exactly what he does. That's why Jesus is standing at this crowd in Luke chapter 13. 
and why the Spirit of God is speaking to this crowd and calling us to repentance today because God is so ready to forgive that He has already sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sins that we might be forgiven. Sent His Son to preach, to heal, to live, but especially to take the judgment of God that we deserve so that we might not have to take it. So question number one today. Christian, of what are you repenting today? Question number two. Do you even know him today? Do you know this Jesus who gave himself for you. Father, we thank you today for that grace and that mercy extended to us. Father, forgive us when we look at events and circumstances and think that we are able to piece together all that you're doing. We know that ultimately, Father, it is for your glory and it is for our good, but we have no way of fully understanding that. And so, Father, I pray for us as your children gathered here today that we would be quick to trust you and that we would be quick to repent when we do not. That when you bring conviction and when you show what is wrong, that we are quick to run to you and find mercy grace. Thank you for being merciful to us, to continue working on us as you've promised, that you will complete that work. Father, I pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand what you say to us today through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.